This morning's uh, text is from John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning, and uh, welcome to the Leo Campus on this Christmas Eve morning. Uh, we're really glad you're here. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and it's always a treat to have you on this snowy morning. So I grew up in Minnesota, and not that I love the snow, but it was kind of sweet to see the accent of snow this morning. So I think we're graced today uh, for Christmas Eve. Well, I do like Christmas, and uh, one of the favorite things I like about Christmas are Christmas decorations. Now, I don't always like all of them. Uh, but I do like nativity sets or nativity scenes. And have you noticed there's just a whole lot of those out there? Um, I'm all for creativity and imagination, but really? Uh, in case you're looking for the last moment gift, I don't think it can get to you this quick, but uh, try Amazon. Uh, there's a bunch of nativity scenes out there. So let me just give you a little bit of a picture in case you are wondering about the variety of nativity sets and the imagination. Here's one. Uh, it's the bear nativity scene. <laughs> I mean, can you believe someone wants this? I mean, if you have this, don't email me, okay? Bless you. This might be on your mantle. Maybe you're into bears. I don't know. The other one is, um, I call them the moose one, right? Or meese. The, it's an advent set, nativity set with mooses. Did I say moose or mooses? I don't know, moose, plural. Mises, that was already But this one takes the cake. Y'all, you ready for this one? Don't ever have this one on your mantle. It's the hipster one. It really is. Now, if you have that on your mantle, you're sick. So I'm just saying, don't do that one. I'm going to stick with our willow tree nativity set. I like that one. But it reminded me, you know, when you look at all these nativity scenes and nativity sets, it reminds me how people across our culture look at the Bethlehem manger differently, right? We focus on different things of the Christmas story. Some focus on Mary, you know, and her courage. Others focus on Joseph and his honor and courage, his struggle. Some focus on these scruffy shepherds or these crazy magi people traveling all across the world following a star. So let me ask you, when you look in the nativity scene or a nativity set, what do you see? What do you focus on? Mary? Pretty good. Joseph? Angels? Magi? But what did the gospel writer see when he looked in the Bethlehem manger? Well, I want to suggest for your thinking this morning and your heart that more than anything else, John saw a lamb. A lamb. But why? If you brought a Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament. Not the first book. The first, <laughs> turn to the Gospel of John. Sorry about that. It's actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book. And I'd like us to look this morning, as we continue our Advent series, we are exploring John's opening words. The opening words of the prologue and that that go on its heels tell the bigger story of Christmas. 
And in his persuasive prologue, John introduces us to the one born in a Bethlehem manger as the Logos, that principle, that Greek principle of eternal sort of rationality. Uh, And he introduces us to the Logos as the eternal creator, the Word or God who became flesh. One of the themes in John's prologue is Jesus is the true light. He has come into the world to conquer the darkness of evil in the world. And as beautiful and as brilliant as the prologue is, as John puts a welcome mat to all who will believe across the globe, he doesn't yet answer a very important question. The question is, how, how will the true light conquer the darkness of evil in the world? So here in chapter 1, on the heels of the prologue, John answers this crucial question. And his answer is that Jesus the Lamb, the Lamb will overcome the darkness and evil in the world. The Bethlehem manger, John will say, is the Lamb who dies on the cross. So this morning, we want to zero in on one verse. I don't often get to do this, but it is so impregnated with truth I want us to camp out there. So, you ready? I'd like us, as we look at this verse, to reflect on three truths that John sees in the Bethlehem manger, truths that I trust will inspire your heart and mind and encourage you this morning as we contemplate the Bethlehem manger on this eve of Christmas. First, the first truth is John will say, the long, long wait is now over. Secondly, he will say, the Savior is now born. And third, he will begin to frame the idea that the future is now hopeful. The first truth we see in the first part of John 1, 29, that is that the long, long wait is now over. And notice with me in the text, John, the gospel writer, includes John the Baptist's words. The next day, he, or John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, the gospel writer utilizes John the Baptist's words, Behold the Lamb of God, to herald Jesus' redemptive mission to the world. Now, I do not want us to scoot over the very first word translated in verse 29. It is the word in much English translations, and a good one, Behold. And it sets the excitable tone of our text and it conveys much, much more meaning than we often think. Let's recall earlier, if you've been a part of our series, in the prologue, that John the Baptist has already shown up in sort of a tributary way, but now John the Baptist, as a particularly persuasive first century witness, now John the Baptist, in verses 19 through 28, is the main focus. He's the main character in the narrative, and it seems at first blush kind of strange, does it not? But there's something important going on here, that John the Gospel writer would put John the Baptist in the main framework of these verses tells us something important. What is going on under the words is a massive cultural buzz, and the question is, why? Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament at all, you will know that there's something important going on here that the Old Testament writers 
looked to the future down the corridor of time and saw an anointed one. The Hebrew word is Mashiach, it's the Messiah. Someone who would come and set the world right. This was a part of the framework of the 39 books in the Old Testament. As the Old Testament builds, the last book is the book of Malachi, named after the prophet Malachi. And as the Old Testament closes, as the chapter closes on the Old Testament, Malachi says something very important as he looks to the future. And that is that a prophet will come, and he uses the language of Elijah, or like Elijah, who will bring hope to God's covenant people. This is important to understand what is going on behind the scenes. Now, between the closing of the Old Testament, which is Malachi, and the opening of the New Testament, which is the book of Matthew, 400 long, long years pass. It is as if God has gone silent on His people. Imagine 400 years of waiting. God's covenant people wait and they wait, and they wait. For all of us, waiting is hard to do, right? Even in a nanosecond world, waiting becomes excruciating. Uh, I hate waiting. If you've been around me, you know I hate waiting. Patience is not one of my great gifts at this point. I hate waiting for my coffee to get ready, to be heated up, especially in the morning, or for my computer to load a really big video, right? Maybe 10 seconds. Or waiting at a red light. I mean, I just am transformed into something else, not a pastor in there. <laughs> but sometimes we are asked to wait longer, aren't we, in life? Sometimes we wait for a dream to come true. Sometimes we wait for a desire we long for to be fulfilled. Sometimes we wait agonizingly, day after day, of a prayer that doesn't seem to be answered. Sometimes we wait a long time for the right job to surface or that promotion we so long for. Sometimes we wait for our physical or mental health to be restored. Or sometimes we wait and wait and wait for a frayed relationship to be healed. So can you imagine waiting for four hundred years. Add to that the first century context as we walk back in time to the first century. The first century covenant people were under the big thumb of Rome. Heavy taxation, oppression. So, you add all that together, you can begin to feel the pent-up energy when this prophet-like dude arrives. His name is John the Baptist. And if you read the New Testament, he does kind of weird things. He eats weird things. He looks weird. He has a prophetic aura. And the first century context goes bonkers. This is why this important Greek word is attached to behold. It's like a megaphone. Now, the best thing I can relate to that in my life is I've been in Kansas City now almost 30 years. And I'm a Royals fan. I've always been a Royals fan for as long, well, a long time. But you know, many of us endured year after year after year. I wasn't here in 85. Year after year after year of a 
team that wasn't a lot of fun to watch. But then what happened? Wow. They made it to the World Series. No, they made it. The next year they won it. And this whole place, Kansas City, went bonkers. You didn't have to be a Royals fan to be caught up in the energy and excitement. It was palpable. When a similar way, in the first century, when John the Baptist megaphones, I'm sorry, when, when John the Baptist megaphones Jesus, behold, the place goes bananas. But not only does John say, he is here, he is here, notice what John says in describing him. Behold the Lamb of God. Now, again, remember that John writes to the whole world. He invites us to believe in this Jesus, whether we are Jew or Gentile, but here he tips his literary hat to his Jewish readers. The minute they hear the word lamb, there is a connection to their story. So let's go back for a moment. When we go to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis, if you have read any of that or you know the Jewish history, Abraham was a major figure, Father Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 22, there is a stunning story. It's a story of Abraham, out of extraordinary obedience, takes his son Isaac, the promised son, up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him out of obedience to God. It's just an amazing story. And as the sacrifice is being prepared, young Isaac asked Abraham this question. It is explicit in Genesis 22. The young boy looks at his father and at the sacrifice and says, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And just as Abraham is about to raise the knife, God intervenes and provides a ram for a sacrifice. But it is this question from the beginning early stages of Torah. The question, where is the lamb? That echoes across the terrain of the Old Testament, across time, like stone or a pebble skipping across the pond. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? When we get to Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, God's covenant people are suffering under bondage in Egypt. God brings a deliverer. And at the heart of that deliverance is an instruction for God's covenant people to slay and sacrifice a tender lamb and put the lamb's blood on the lintel and the doorpost. And as the angel of death comes over Egypt, seeing the shed blood of an innocent lamb, the angel passes over God's covenant people's homes. This picture echoes, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Many centuries later, as we continue down the Old Testament storyline, we get to the prophet Isaiah's time. The prophet Isaiah looks again ahead and 
speaks of the coming Messiah. And in Isaiah 53, Isaiah describes this anointed one as a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Once again, Genesis, Exodus, Isaiah, the echoing question, the intense longing is where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? So it is this backdrop that John the Baptist connects with. He responds to this longing, this echoing, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? All of a sudden, John the Baptist says, Paul, the lamb of God is here. The long wait is now over. I love the Christmas carol written by Charles Wesley. And this Christmas carol is entitled, you'll, you'll recognize it, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Let me just give you a little of the words because the words capture John's one word, behold, in 129. Charles Wesley, a remarkable theologian, captured it. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. When the gospel writer John looked into the manger, what did he see? More than anything else, John saw a lamb. And he knew at that moment that the long, long wait was now over. But John also knew a second truth. And that is that the Savior was now here. Look at me again at verse 29 as it continues. Behold, the Lamb of God, what? Who takes away the sin of the world. John's lamb imagery here is, of course, not how Jesus looked, but rather what Jesus came to do. The Lamb came to die for the sin of the world. And at the very beginning of John's gospel, John declares the most amazing news imaginable. That Jesus the Lamb is the sacrificial Lamb, God's complete Passover Lamb, His final provision for a sinful world. Jesus the Lamb of God is the ultimate Passover Lamb. That's what John is saying. Whose innocent shed blood on the cross will conquer the darkness of evil and bring deliverance to humanity and humanity's greatest enslavement to sin. What John is saying is God is so unimaginable holy and sin is so reprehensible and serious that something extremely costly is needed to bridge this massive chasm. What is essential for the forgiveness of this sin, the Bible says, is the shedding of innocent blood. Book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 9, verse 2, says it so succinctly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. How is the lamb able to overcome the incredible darkness in our world, the suffocating darkness in our hearts? Jesus, the sinful lamb, or sinless lamb, took our sin on himself. He pays the price we deserve to pay. It is a massive debt we simply could not pay. And he makes forgiveness and new life possible 
through his atoning sacrifice. The Apostle Paul looked into the manger and saw the lamb as well. The sacrificial lamb, the substitutionary lamb. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says it this way, He, God the Father, made him God the Son, that's Jesus the Lamb, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness or rightness of God in him. On that first Christmas morning, the gospel writer Luke echoes these very deep truths. He heralds the angelic witness given to a group of scruffy shepherds regarding this baby born in a Bethlehem manger. And notice, Luke says, and quotes the angels saying, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy. No wonder it's great news of a good joy. 400 years of waiting. And in Angelic announcement says, it is for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ or Messiah, the Lord. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all declare this good news in harmony. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come. He is the one foretold long ago. He is the Davidic King, a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. John declares without blushing, the long wait is over. The Savior has come, but John also begins to focus on the next truth as he looks to the future, and that is a future that is amazingly hopeful. Here in the first chapter, utilizing the lamb imagery, the gospel writer John begins with the end in mind. He anticipates the ending of his gospel, and if you see the beauty of the literary structure of the whole book, you will notice the hint forward. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will die, John will say. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has risen from the dead. He will rise from the dead. Jesus, the Lamb of God, will come again. That captures the theme of the beautiful book of the Gospel of John that calls us to believe. But John also looks to the book he would write and did write in a very similar way with similar language in a different genre, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, John wrote, and the connections are profound in its linguistic and its theological and thematic structures. It is the last book of the Bible written by John. And here we get a more full glimpse of the Bethlehem manger lamb. The Bethlehem manger lamb not only came to this earth to die, but to reign forever. John will tell us This lamb is not only the sacrificial lamb, this lamb is the warrior lamb who has conquered evil and death. So important is this theme and this connection from the gospel of John to Revelation is that John even, he will take another Greek word, he will use it 30 times to describe the lamb, Jesus, 30 times in Revelation. Always about Jesus. When John looked into the manger, he saw the lamb. John shines his literary spotlight on Jesus in amazing ways. He picks up the echoing and imagery of the lamb from the Old Testament as well as his gospel. Where is the lamb foretold in the Old Testament? Where is the lamb introduced by John the Baptist? Where is the lamb who died on the cross? Where is the lamb who rose from the dead? Where is the lamb who will one day return? Where is the John's final answer, his whole gospel builds to, and the book of Revelation, is a picture of a heavenly throne room. 
Revelation 5, verses 11 through 14, John describes what he saw. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads. The idea here, thousands, is uncountable. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing, honor, glory, might forever and ever. And then in chapter seven, after he moves through this angelic scene that is uncountable, he focuses on God's redeemed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Verses nine and 10 of chapter seven, we have an antiphonal, antiphonal echoing of this heavenly scene. Now John focuses on us, primarily. He says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Notice from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. John gives us a greater glimpse of a brighter future. The primary focus of John is to give us a greater glimpse and revelation of Jesus himself. But in doing that, the Alpha and Omega, he gives us a glimpse of future. Jesus, who created time, who stepped into time, outside of time, is given a time framework to accommodate our time-boundness. John looks to the future in that sense, and he sees the supremacy of Christ. Christ, the sacrificial warrior lamb, who has conquered all evil, darkness, sin, and death. This baby, born in the manger, John says, is the lamb who has conquered sin, evil, and death. He is the Lamb who is worthy of all creation's worship. Every atom in the universe. Jesus is the Lamb who reigns supreme for all eternity. That's the idea. The comprehensive sweep of all creation worshiping Him. From the beginning of His gospel to the very end, John is saying, all the wonder of Christ Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. And He wants us to believe in the Lamb, to put our faith and trust in the Lamb. So let me ask you this morning, when you look at the Bethlehem manger and the nativity scene, what do you see? First, you see the depth of brokenness. If there's one thing I think many of us agree in our world today, people of faith, Christian faith, non-faith, wherever we are, is that our world is badly broken. That things are not as they ought to be, that we are not as we ought to be. I love the wise and winsome 20th century Brit, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote prolifically. And he was asked by a newspaper to write an essay on what is wrong with the world. <laughs> One of the great classics of his century. He wrote back, in his cursive. What is wrong with the world? 
And he gives two words, I am. Chesterton is simply pointing to the greatest problem in the world, what the Bible calls sin. Sin can be defined in many ways, but it describes the comprehensive brokenness of each of our lives and our world. Sin is not only in what we do that we should not do, but what we don't do that we ought to do. Sin is not only our external actions, but our internal thoughts and our motivations. Sin at its hideous core disintegrates God's integral design. Sin is pervasive and impacts you and me personally, relationally, socially, culturally, institutionally. Sin is a massive problem. But is there an answer? The answer John gives us is to find true forgiveness and to be given a new creation life by the creator of all reality and the redeemer of his people. This is what Jesus called the new birth. The new birth is where the truly good and beautiful life of Christ-likeness flows from the innermost being of our life, not only now, but for all eternity. Brokenness in our lives can become wholeness. That's the good news of the gospel. When we, by grace through faith, embrace Jesus the Lamb as our personal Lord and Savior. God's word declares from beginning to end John declares in his gospel from beginning to end that nothing, no one, can transform the human heart except Jesus. I was reminded of this truth this week in a Wall Street Journal article. Maybe you saw it. It was entitled The Salvation of the Napalm Girl. And if you grew up in the Vietnam era or you're a little older, you know that a Pulitzer Prize was given describing this precious little nine-year-old Vietnamese girl who was running naked, her body having been burned by napalm with a look of horror on her face. The good news is that Van Tai Kim Phuc survived. She now lives in Toronto, and she's a beautiful young woman. The better news is in her new book, entitled Fire Road, where she describes how her life has been so transformed by Christ. She describes it as Christmas Eve in 1982 in Vietnam when she placed her faith in Christ and she writes about the transforming moment. As the pastor spoke in the service, I knew in my heart that something was shifting inside me. A decade removed from the defining tragedy of my life, I still desperately needed peace. I had so much hatred, so much bitterness in my heart, yet I was ready, longing for love and true joy. I so wanted to let go of all my pain. And when I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced my first ever heartfelt celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And she says, I know what it is like to experience the unimaginable terror, to feel utterly despondent 
to live in terrorizing fear. And I know how wearing and hopeless life can be. After years in the spiritual wilderness, I felt the kind of healing that can only come from God. Her story reminds us, I trust in a fresh way that no matter the pain or heartache of your past, the difficulty of your present, the fear of your future, the depth of your brokenness, that Jesus the Lamb is there for you. Jesus the Lamb can transform your life. John Newton, who is known best for the most famous Christian hymn. And if you're a person of faith or not, you know the hymn. You probably know the words. Amazing Grace. John Newton was a slave trader before he met Jesus. And he writes these words out of his own experience of transformation. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. John Newton said later on in his life, there were two things he knew. First, that he was a great sinner. Secondly, that Jesus was an unimaginably great Savior. Do you know that? Do you not only capture the sense of the depth of your brokenness, but do you secondly see the height of Jesus' love for you? The Children's Storybook Bible is not only for kids, it's a great Bible for adults. The Children's Storybook strikes just the right chord when it describes what, it's, what it uses the language of the terrible lie. What is the terrible lie? It is the lie that Satan told Eve long ago. It's the lie that the evil one tells each of us. The lie is that God really, really doesn't love you. As image bearers of God, the God of love, it's not surprising, is it? That you and I desire to be loved more than anything else. But as we were reminded last week, if you were here, our text reminds us again this week, no one gets you more than Jesus does. No one loves you more than Jesus does. Jesus not only declared it, friends, he demonstrated it on that cross. And he wants you and I to experience this kind of transforming love this Christmas. One of my favorite writers of another Christian tradition is Henry Nouwen. He gets so much right. And he writes these words, Jesus' whole message is to say that you are God's beloved child. The mystery of the spiritual truth, now and writes, that you are loved before you are born. And you will be loved after you die. Your dwelling in God's heart is a dwelling from eternity to eternity. You are the Lamb's beloved. We as the church are his beloved bride. Liz and I recently were at a wedding. I told you I love weddings. This wedding particularly was amazing. It was like when the bride and groom saw each other. And all during the ceremony, it was like nobody else existed. That everything else was just shadows. They looked into each other's eyes with the most intense love I think I have seen in a long time. Cherishing each other as bride and groom. This 
is just a glimpse of the picture the gospel writer John gives us in his book of Revelation. Revelation 19, Jesus the Lamb is seen as celebrating with his bride, that's us, the church, in a joyful wedding feast. That Jesus would call us, his church, his bride, screams across eternity's vastness how much we are cherished. We who have embraced him in repentance and faith are the love of his heart. So do you see the depth of your brokenness? Do you see the height of Jesus' love for you? Lastly, do you see the breadth of his victory? Like God's covenant people of old, we too wait now. We are groaning along with all creation for that day, that final day, when the world will be made right again. And we will be as God originally designed us to be. Can you imagine when evil will be completely vanquished? When justice, rightness, goodness will reign forever? In the midst of so much darkness, it's difficult sometimes, isn't it? To really believe that a time like that will ever come? Doesn't it seem sometimes like the darkness is overwhelming the light? Liz and I are Star Wars fans. Like many of you, uh, we've already seen The Last Jedi. It's just come out. I won't tell you the details, I promise. I won't be a spoiler. But there's one scene, as you can imagine, if you haven't seen it yet, great scene of the lightsabers. <laughs> Two sabers representing light and darkness, depict, depicting the great struggle between darkness and light, between good and evil. Now, Star Wars, with its pantheistic worldview, convincingly captures the conflict between good and evil. But tragically, its ability to give hope that goodness will prevail is much less convincing. But the gospel writer John gives us convincing hope. And in John chapter 19, we hear the words of Jesus and the Lamb on the cross saying, it is finished. It is finished. The scourge of evil has been given its decisive mortal blow. John puts the exclamation point in it in Revelation 17 on the day of final judgment when the wrath of the Lamb will be complete. And John writes these words. The Lamb will conquer them. For He is the what? Lord of lords and King of kings. It is this word. The brilliant George Frederick Handel in his 18th century work Messiah screams out the good news of the Bethlehem manger, the kingdom of this world. It's become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. 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 King of kings, forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. And the Lord of lords, forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The baby born in a manger is the lamb who died on the cross. He is the lamb who rose from the dead. He is the lamb who sits on the throne forever and ever. And John says, behold the lamb, king of kings, Lord of lords. Hallelujah. Let's pray.